This is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's podcast. I am recording on Tuesday, July 10th. Just, I like to put the date out there because if you happen to hear this in two weeks and I'm not talking about something that you think I should be talking about, well, it's because it's July 10th right now in my brain. And uh, that's the reality of it. Uh, the big news that happened uh, this week, uh, besides the president picking his next SCOTUS uh, appointee, which I will not be discussing, but the real big news is the rescue of the Thai cave boys. And uh, just watching the world being enthralled by this story. And I was thinking about it mythologically uh, because they were having a literal underworld experience. <laughs> they were stuck in the cave of the underworld. And you can't get much more mythological than that, people. And they were in the womb of Earth itself, of the mother. And, uh, you know, not only is it a, a naturally dramatic story because it's rescue and some, uh, you know, retired <laughs> diver came back and uh, lost his life. I mean, it, th there's, there's that part of it. But the, th the reason I wanted to mention it today was because these boys age 11 to 16 with their coach, uh, their assistant coach or their teacher or something like that, were stuck in this cave, did not know if they would ever get out again, were found. But the most amazing thing that I read today was that this adult that was with them started from day one teaching them meditation. And the reason he taught them meditation was because when he was 12 years old, he was an orphan and a Buddhist monastery took him in and immediately made him a monk. And for 10 years, he studied uh, Buddhist scripture and meditation and mindfulness. He became a monk. And so his first instinct when he was there inside the cave was to teach these boys some mindfulness methods and some meditation to help them stay present and calm and connected to themselves. And I am guessing that part of the reason that A, they were in such decent condition when the rescuer, rescuers found them. I mean, yes, they were starving and thirsty and all of that. But I know that when the rescuers found them, they were shocked at how calm they were. And much of the talk about rescuing these kids through this two-mile-long cave. Two miles, people. Think about how long two miles is, and then think about the fact that you're crawling, you're scuba diving, you're crawling through small spaces. Um, I believe the reason that they were able to get all of those kids out and that teacher or coach, whoever he was, was because they had been doing 12, 14, 15 days of meditation, and that it helped them to become aware of their breath, to stay centered, to keep their mind focused and calm. I can't tell you how real this is. I know because in my life, the last 21 years, I too have been practicing meditation, and that 
even though I had gotten over the more difficult hump of my panic attack disorder and my agoraphobia and a lot of the depression and stagnation in my life, uh, when I started meditating, it gave me a bigger, richer, deeper tool to help me navigate my own anxiety and depression and the craziness of the world and certainly the grief that I had at the time after my mother's death. So I just wanted to start the show talking about that a little bit because it really, this shit works, people. It really does. It, it works if you work it. If you're willing to work it, it really works. So I'm just putting it out there because as you know, I do teach a little meditation on Sundays with my Sunday Unplug class. And uh, so if any of you are curious out there and uh, want to learn a little bit about what the Thai, the Thai cave boys learned <laughs> in the belly of earth, then um, come on board. Come over to my Patreon and check me out at patreon.com forward slash Kelly Carlin. And I'm also talking about this subject because I'm so excited. I have a guest today on my show. Haven't had a guest in quite a while. And I uh, am particularly excited about this person because she's someone I know and she's the mother of a most beloved human in my life. In 2013, I got a book deal to write my memoir. And the person who shepherded me through every single step of that was my editor at St. Martin's Press. And my editor is named Hannah Broughton. And she is like part uh, rock star, part coach, part taskmaster, part therapist, uh, and 100% editor. And she and I fell in love with each other. And I got a chance to know Hannah pretty well because, well, we hung out for about two years together via, the, via email and telephone calls and via my story. And uh, I got to um, have some encounters with her mother, who is my guest today. And her name is Ellen, Ellen Broughton. She's a PhD. She's co-director at the Clay Center for Young Healthy Minds at Massachusetts General Hospital director of the Learning and Emotional Assessment Program, known as LEAP, at the same hospital. And she's an associate professor of psychology at La Tida Harvard Medical School. She is a psychologist, teacher, and researcher whose career has focused on improving understanding and treatment of children with learning and attention issues, particularly ADHD, learning disabilities, dyslexia, autism spectrum and processing speed and yes like i said she's also hannah's mom ellen welcome thank you so much for having me that is the best introduction i've ever had in my life <laughs> i love that mostly because it's about my daughter so thank you so much for having me here you're so welcome and the reason you're here is because uh, like many people I hang out with on Twitter, Ellen and I uh, hang out on Twitter together. And I don't even know how it came up, but something came up about learned helplessness. And uh, Ellen reached out to me and said, you know, I think this, I'm writing something about this. I think this is what's happening in America right now. And uh, 
I think people, there's some people who are definitely falling into this psychological state of mind. And I'm like, oh my God, we have to talk about this for my podcast. So here we are today. So so Ellen, I know you're working on an essay, an op-ed essay, actually. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to let you kind of jump in a little bit. And I'd love to hear your take on what you think is happening uh, for some people, for some state of minds here in America around this topic. And tell us a little bit about what learned helplessness is exactly. Sure. You know, I wish I could remember, too, why I got this. It was definitely someone wrote something at some point about feeling like it's ne- there's a never-ending stream of just bad news, and we can't sort of pick ourselves up to do anything about it. And it reminded me of these studies that were done um, back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, one of the researchers was uh, Martin Seligman, who was at the University of Pennsylvania, And he did some studies which would never be allowed these days, where you were allowed to shock dogs and see what happened to them. And what he found was a number of different things. But one of the the simplest things he found is that if you put a dog in a very helpless situation where he is shocked and has no way of getting out of it, he adjusts to that. Mm. And that even when you change the parameters of the study and you allow the dog now to get out by just sort of basically just jumping over a very low little barrier or touching a lever, they don't do it. They, they have learned to not respond because what they've experienced is the fact that they, that they can't change the environment. And, I, and there have been some other studies done on, on how people react to this and how, um, we can talk about that too a little bit later on what to do because future studies have sort of shown that this isn't just a a one-time thing, that there are ways to sort of get around this. But it kind of reminded me of how all of us are feeling, or not many, many, not all of us, many of us are feeling in that we, we, every day there's another story that's, that's, um, depressing that we can't do anything about. I think that's why it was wonderful you started with the study about the boys in Thailand because it's like, oh, it was a bad story and a happy ending. Um, but we're hearing so many things about kids not being, you know, being taken away from their parents and our rights being taken away and a lot of the advantages and things we've worked really hard for for so long are being eroded and and we're in many ways sort of helpless right now with this on this date in time, there's not a ton that we can do. Um, and so I, I, I'm just worried that we're becoming a society that is, has sort of learned to just say, meh, there's nothing I can do. Why, why bother? And it's a scary sort of thought. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I was reading up on this, you sent me some articles around this and I was thinking about the other situations that this, uh, first of all, those, the dog shocking, I, I had, I, Ellen sent me the article, uh, the the actual study that Martin Seligman did, and just reading it and thinking, oh my God, they're shocking dogs. Like, yes, back in the day, that's what we did in psychology. Yes. We shocked yes. the dogs and we 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 squeezed the rats. And it was like, oh my God, this just, it just shows you how much culture has changed yes. at this level. Um, but uh, thinking about these other situations, you know, one of the ones that really struck home for me too was domestic abuse and how women who are stuck in in an abusive relationship, uh, you know, I was in one of those, I get it, uh, that 
you, they always say, well, why doesn't she just get up and leave? What's wrong with her? I mean, she's got the means, she's got family, she can walk away, you know, and some people don't have the means financially or support, but some people do. And you, and the thing is, is that there's something that happens where you, the reinforcement happens that you do not think that any effort you make will really change anything. Mm -hmm. And so that's when you start to give up like, well, there's, you know, and it's not even like you have a conscious thought about this. It's that literally you can't try anymore. You, right. you, you cannot try. There's no, there's no option in your head that says walk out the door. Right. It, right. It, it just doesn't show up. And, um, and then, of course, there's the PTSD aspect of it, you know, people coming back from war and, or, or terror attacks or, you know, anything like that where people feel like there is no sense of agency that, you know, that they can change anything. And, um, and then it's all sorts of things stack on top of that. Um, so there's a lot of ways in which we do learn this. And of course, being a child, I mean, I, on a very small level, being a child of uh, parents with uh, addict, uh, you know, addictions, uh, I, I think that started my sense of learned helplessness and did not train me well to be in relationships because I just ex accepted the status quo no matter what because there were, I was an only child and Whenever I tried to change my parents' behavior and tried to get them to be sober or stop arguing or to be more like healthy adults, um, I was up against addiction. And I didn't yeah. understand that as a, a five-year-old, six-year-old, 10-year-old. Um, and so the, I did get a, there was some learned helplessness definitely in my childhood. And so, and I'm, I'm betting the majority of the people out there who've had some sort of dysfunctional family situation, there's some aspect of all of us that um, just thinks that what's the point? Yeah. Nothing, nothing's going to change. Yeah. And there's, there's a real brain. That's, so since those studies, we've, we've learned that there's a real brain basis for this, that it, it's our brain sort of going into default mode. And in fact, it, it might even not be so much that we learn this, but that our brain's default mode is to sort of um, maintain status quo because it's better for you know, the long-term survival, um, even though it doesn't make a lot of sense intuitively or, or even um, when you, you know, like you're just trying to, you know, I, again, like you were saying, that, that idea of just being able to walk out the door has been shown that's not what animals do. It's not what we do. And partly because it's complicated, but on the other hand, it's because it's what our brains are wired to do. Um, it's interesting, though, you bring up this issue about addiction, because I feel like we're in such an addictive society. So trying to apply this to a bigger picture makes sense. I mean, we're addicted to our phones. We're addicted to this, this new cycle that it just whether we're for or against whatever it is, we're, we're, you know, whatever side we're on, we just can't get enough of it. And I feel like it's, it, it makes it even harder. Like you were saying, when, when addiction or PTSD or trauma come into play, it just makes it even harder. It's, it's much more complicated from a brain-based uh, situation, but also from just a situational kind of issue as well. 
Yeah, it's so interesting, this this default mode um, thing, you know, that, that, you know, our evolutionary wise, this is how we're wired. And this is how the species, like you were mm-hmm. saying, it doesn't make sense logically, but the species is like, don't, don't make a stir, go with the status quo, you know, go with the flow kind of a thing. And of course, being conscious beings with egos, uh, you know, 90% of us is like, no, I'm a separate thing and I need to forge ahead and I'm supposed to be doing this and that. And yet our brains are working against us. And, and that in and of itself, when you are stuck in a situation, like when I had panic attacks and agoraphobia too, it was like that for me. It was like, I didn't feel in charge of my body. Uh, My body felt in charge of me and there was a level of what's the point because I can't make this thing switch yet. I can't figure out the code to make it switch. Luckily, I ended up help getting help in figuring out the code because there is a way to figure yes. out the code. Yes. And, and we'll talk more about that, the switching part. But I, I love what you're saying about the addicted part because, you know, we are... It is funny, and, and you know, we don't see the connection between the addiction, the dopamine loop of getting the hit on the social media, yes. the likes, and the and the and yeah. the getting into the arguments. Um, and I was thinking about my own reactions, like this, this the spectrum of reactions that I'm having. Like I'm sure you are too. One of which is, and it's not every day, but I know some people are really stuck in this one. It's like, oh, I'm going to watch the news shows that I like, and I'm going to see the little ways in which we're winning, or we are going to win, or where's the gotchas today? And so there's a lot of that team, competitive, you know, how's my team going? And um, I have days like that where I do, I like, I watch five hours of news and I, (laughs) I search for any little clue that we're winning. Oh, I do the same thing. And it's such a waste of time. I, I, I would be so much better off reading a good book. Um, and it's funny you say this, though, because I, there, I had a couple of weeks ago where I was just very busy with, with different things going on in my life. And, and I had visitors in and I didn't watch the news. Usually the first thing I do when I come up, when I get home at night is I turn on the news, MSNBC, CNN, whatever. You're right. Yep. To see what happened today to make me feel like we are, we are charging ahead. You know, what gotcha happened that I'm going to feel better about. And I didn't watch the news for like five days. I slept so well. And speaking of my daughter, Hannah, who's always telling me it wisely. So what I'm doing or not doing right. I said, I've been sleeping so well. I haven't had MSNBC for, for days. She's like, mom, that, that could maybe be why. So, um, so I think titrating that a little bit, uh, I think might be one one very easy thing we could do because we it, it is sort of we watch to be informed, and that's really why we should watch the news. That's a great reason to watch the news. But I think sometimes we watch to just just I don't I don't know get satiated on something that's actually not very satisfying to, to chew on. Well, and I think this might tap into the learned helplessness part, because I think this is a way that we feel powerful in the moment. And if we feel powerful Mm -hmm. in the moment, then we don't have to feel that goddamn helplessness thing we're feeling for five minutes. And 
Um, I just had someone today um, on my Patreon, because I always ask my people, what bonus thing do you want to talk about? And she said, she said, I have friends who are so addicted to the news right now, and they're so addicted to politics, and it's ruining their lives. It, you know, like, what can we do to help our friends to, like, find a way to, like, like have them put down the crack pipe because that's what it is like. Yeah. It's like a crack pipe. And, and it's hard because you're right. There is a part of us that a needs to stay informed for sure. Right. Uh, but you know, once you hear like the first five minutes of the news, you're pretty much. Informed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but you want to see like every single person who's, who's, who might just have a possible opinion. I mean, a lot of what we call news, or I should say this, a lot of what I watch and call news is really just people talking about what happened. It's really, like you said, the first five minutes tells me what I need to know, and the rest are just people talking about it, which is interesting, but I don't know that I need quite that much of it. Um, And yeah, it's like a crack pipe. It is, you just can't, you know, it's sort of like, well, after after the advertisement, what will so-and-so say about that? They may have something new to say about it. And there's, there's really, that's rarely the case. Yeah, yeah. And when you start to see, I think, and realize for me, like, oh, even the people that I agree with, with policy-wise, you know, like MSNBC, I'm definitely mm-hmm. a lefty. I, you know, I'm not 100% a lefty, but for the most part. Um, but you know what? It's a bunch of fear-mongering in the end. Yeah. They're stirring yeah. up a lot of panic. And that's what I see out there. Uh, also on social media with people. It's, uh, and so here's the conundrum, I think, for a lot of us. And I'd love to have your take on this, which is, so if I don't panic about what's going on, am I on the wrong side of history? And therefore... Am I not doing my part? But, and then am I being selfish because I want to stay sane so I only watch BBC World News and read the headlines of the New York Times? <laughs> so, you know, it's like how, 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 what do you recommend for people to have a balance in this so that we don't get overwhelmed and swamped and our brains don't get activated? I think we should we should give credence to the things we're already doing to take care of ourselves because I think that's getting a little bit lost. Um, even for myself, like I do a lot in my daily job that that moves us all ahead, and most of us do. If we care for one other person, we're pushing us all ahead. So I think keeping that in mind, and then I also think there's this there's this I don't know this push pull because there's really not a ton we can do mm. to change things right now until the next election cycle and um, and then what if things don't change that much in the way you're hoping I you know we can't worry about the future that much because we really can't control it but we can do some things now other than just watch because watching isn't really doing anything and I think that's one way to sort of get under that, you know, you're watching because you're so concerned, but it's really, it's not helping anybody. Um, And so I think picking something that might be helpful, and, you know, personally, I think the number one thing we can do is to get people out and voting. I mean, that is change civilizations. You know, you, you, 
you resist it, but but ultimately you have to vote in a democracy if you want to change things. And I think that's the number one thing we could do to to move things along. You, you know, and it's this got me thinking about the bigger picture, like beyond what's just happened the last two years and having such a populist conservative, you know, majority going on right now, which is that, you know, this voting thing is is so interesting because with the amount of money in politics uh, for the, I mean, it's, and it's just gotten worse and worse. I mean, obviously with, you know, uh, Citizens United, that pushed it on a whole nother level. Yeah. But even before that, you know, when, when the average citizen doesn't believe that his representative is really representing him anymore, that lobbyists have completely taken over um, Washington. And so I think this, this citizen um, voting citizen learned helplessness has been going on yeah. for, you know, probably since the Reagan era, I would think, you know, if you really look, think back on it all. And, um, and so th- that's the, that's the, that's the narrative. And I think the real work that we have to do going forward is, that if we're going to get serious about this American experiment again, yeah. we're going to have to get really serious about money in politics. And, and voting is the only power we have with that. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> it is the only one because there are people who are willing to be elected to really stand up against this and make this their issue. And it's... And I, I would guess probably 90% of at least Americans want money out of politics. And I know on either side of the political spectrum, that's partly how the Tea Party started. Was to, it, so there's a lot we agree on. We just don't realize it. Um, and a lot of the other things are open for discussion. I mean, that's what a, a, you know, a complex society has is open discussion about things that we disagree on. But we can't, you're right, we can't get there if, if we're in a, if, if we're buying, if our politicians are being bought. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things I have found, though, in the last year is I've done more reading from people who are on a different political spectrum than I am. And that's where social media can be a positive thing. Like there are, you know, people on Twitter that I follow that are very different from me. And I mean, yeah, I'm not talking about people that are, you know, like, cruel or mean. I'm not, I'm yes. not, I'm talking about people who just think differently than I do. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's been a really interesting exercise and, um, and I, I actually feel fortunate to be able to get into their world a little bit. Um, in some ways, you know, the band-aid has been ripped off. And so why not, uh, you know, like, <laughs> why not just talk to some other people that we wouldn't normally talk to? And it's been very enlightening. Yeah, I, I too have had that experience. A very close friend of mine is Dave Rubin, and he's a libertarian. Yes. He's a gay man. Uh, he's a free speech advocate. That's what he does. He's a dear, dear friend of mine. And there's there's definitely things that, I mean, his position on is, Israel is very different than mine. And, you know, and he wants much less government regulation than I do, being more libertarian than he is. But there's tons of things we meet, meet you know, meet very well with. And I have spent a lot of time, you know, uh, following the people that he's had on his show and people who are considered 
horrible human beings to the left uh, that really they're not. And it, you really start to see the bullshit that's being flung back and forth when you mm-hmm. really sit down and read someone and, and use logic and reason and rational thinking around these things. And I've had the joy of being on some podcasts of some people who, not my thing, not, I mean, they're mostly libertarians, but man, do we have a ton in common and man, do we see mm-hmm. the world in such a great way. And they're not you know, th- this name calling that's going back and forth. Um, I, I, that's what I find. So I think that creates a lot of despair for me because it's like, here you are with people that you agree with policy wise, and they're just flinging names at people. And you're like, do you not see that when you call someone a racist before you know them, that they're not really going to want to come to the conversation. No, I think that's exactly right. And I think, you know, I could even say that I probably, maybe not to that extent, but guilty of some of that myself. Like, I don't want to listen to what that person has to say because they don't agree with me. And I've done the same thing. I've, I, um, Tom Nichols, who's a political scientist, who's a, a Republican and um, I started following him on Twitter, reading some of his work. I'm now taking one of his classes. He teaches at the Harvard Extension School in the summer. It's been this great experience to sort of learn from a different perspective. And um, I feel like in some ways, this is this sort of situation has created some opportunities. I know it sounds a little Pollyannish, but I actually think it's true um, because I was so eager to discount other points of view, you know, just a few years ago. And definitely if we go back decades, it's sort of like, I, you know, I, people were in categories and that's where they stayed in my, you know, in my personal view. And it's so interesting because when we, I mean, you're a psychologist, you know, I've studied psychology. Part of what we do is help people expand their perspectives. <laughs> that's yes. pretty much our job. Yeah. <laughs> And, and we know the game that the ego personality plays, which is status quo. I mean, it's like, this is how it is. This is how it needs to be. Don't rock my boat. Uh, what do you mean? You know, I, I unconsciously do that thing to you in our relationship or, or whatever <laughs> it is. Like whenever you learn that you've, you know, like some shadow aspect of you has come out and shit all over someone and you're like, I don't even... I have no I have no concept that I even did that. When you learn how the unconscious works like that, you really do get a, a, awakened to the fact that oh, we we are just such narrow little beings. We feel so comfortable in this narrow little comfort zone. And and I I think you're right about this. Uh, I don't think it's Pollyanna at all. I think that when such a big shakeup happens to people's ideas of what a country is supposed to be like or who we are, um, this is where we're seeing like, oh, guess what? No, this is who we are. This is, this is who we've been for the last 200 years. There is an extremely misogynistic, racist aspect to our country, yes. uh, very much asleep, uh, you know, very much selfish, greedy, uh, willing to break rules to get ahead, you know, and mm-hmm. and we are we are having to 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 pay the price now of of owning it. And I think by just projecting it onto the quote unquote people on the other side, 
whether they be the deplorables or the the snowflakes, is missing the opportunity of this time. Yeah, I think you're right. And that's that's been a hopeful thread in somewhat of a hopeless um, year or two. <laughs> yes, um, yes, yes. So speaking of hope, what, what are some ways that people can, you know, Martin Seligman ended up going on to being the guy who's like the positive psychology guru. Right. I mean, he's the happiness project guy. Uh, which I know a lot of people get suspicious about. People are like, ooh, optimism and happiness. It becomes, they, they fear it's Pollyanna. Uh, but what's really exciting about this time also, I feel in the social sciences, is that we are getting a ton of research about understanding these default modes, understanding the power of mindset, how we can change mindset. It's why I teach mindfulness and meditation because that is all about becoming aware of your mindset. That's the number one thing. Oh, what mindset am I in? So from your work that you do, and I know you work with children with, um, you know, different levels of uh, perspectives and perception and disability or what we call disability. Um, But just in, in your other work too, what do you know about the shift that one can make to get out of learned helplessness or despair or when we're stuck in these modes? Well, you know, there, there's a, a lot of new research on resiliency and, and which is very much like this, you know, sort of thinking about happiness, but in, in children in particular, thinking we used to think that resiliency was something you were born with. There were resilient people and there were people who weren't. We know now that is not the case at all, that it's something that actually can be learned. And, you know, some of the things you've already mentioned are things that have been very well documented over the last decade or two. Um, Meditation is an incredible tool for coping with anxiety, for um, helping with concentration, attention, um, being more focused on what you're doing, feeling more resilient. Uh, Other other things that, that have been shown is that Giving people the opportunity, kids, I'll talk about kids, Mm -hmm. giving kids the opportunity to sort of overcome something is exactly what we need. And a a lot of our child rearing over the last decade or so has been to remove challenges. You know, I don't want my child to feel pain. I don't want them. And it's the wrong thing. I mean, another, you know, when we're talking about maybe this is a time to help build that resiliency, we've lived in a pretty nice kind of, you know, few decades, half a century. So maybe this kind of gives us that ability, like, no, overcoming a challenge. Actually, when we study kids with learning disabilities who make it to college, they actually are um, more resilient. They're more satisfied. They're they're able to more roll with the punches than kids who don't have learning disabilities. If you looked at the research on that, you'd say, I wish my child had a learning disability (laughs) because when they get to college, they're going to be better able to cope. So I think you know, taking challenges as they come and then learning strategies to get over them is really sets you up very well in life if you're a child. And then there are other things, too, that I think we underestimate things like exercise, forming connections with other people, talking with other people. Um, and that's why some of the things that you mentioned, like sitting by yourself watching television, the news for five hours is, is actually not a good way of building resiliency 
And um, it's, it's, a, it's not a good coping skill. So, and I also think that kind of accepting that change is just part of life and accepting that a lot of life is outside of our control can sort of bring that, you know, that, that awareness can, can help you be able to sit with it better um, and feel less frustrated knowing that, no, nope, life, life doesn't always come at the same, um, you know, I, 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 I can't create it all at the, the same, you know, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but you know what I mean? Like yeah. we can't control it. So if we can have that perspective and really believe it, it actually helps us maintain that positive outlook. Yeah, so. you know, it, it's part of the reason I call this show Waking from the American Dream, because the American Dream has this fantasy that um, if you work hard, you'll get what you want, that uh, there is only endless progress and growth available in the world, and, and that there is some thing just over the hill that's going to solve everything for you. And that understanding that, first of all, life is up and down. And that is just the way it is. The vicissitudes of life are just that. And, um, and that's, you know, that's what I loved about when I first started studying Buddhism was, you know, this whole idea of impermanence that, I mean, my mother had just died, which was my big shocking realization of impermanence. Like, oh, A, parents die and my mom died young and I'm going to die. And this isn't forever. Like, this is like, like, holy shit. Like, really, this isn't forever. I thought maybe, just maybe it might be forever just for me. And, (laughs) and, um, but that, that sense of sitting with what is learning to strengthen that muscle of yes. Okay. Right now, this is shitty. This shitty thing is happening I maybe have some control over it, or maybe I don't. Mm-hmm. But the only thing I have control over, for sure, is my reaction to it. And I think that's the resiliency part. That's where we learn, like, oh, I can feel shitty about something. You know, I can let myself have however long I need to have on the pity pot. Yes, <laughs> yes. I went through a hard time a few years ago and, and I was like, today I'm having a pity party. Yes. I'm not. And it was so good because it's sort of like, once I identified it, I didn't feel responsible that anybody else had to feel bad for my pity party because it was my party. And yeah. And, and, and I think that's an, and that is an important part of, of metabolizing change in our life and difficulty is you do get to feel shitty for a while yes. about it. You know, and and you have a right to feel shitty. You know, I grieved my mother's death for a long time. And that doesn't mean I didn't have joy during that part either. But there was a part of me that was like, I need to be in the muck of this. And, mm-hmm. and you know, and when those of us who voted for Hillary lost the election and thought, oh, my God, first woman president and all that kind of stuff, even though she wasn't the perfect candidate for me, but she was this. And Trump was there. It was like, I'm... I'm going to have to feel bad about this for a little while and let myself feel bad. And then at some point, I can't let this kill me. I can't walk around with this for four years. There's just no way. Yeah. And, um, but, but it is a, an important part of it. And, and being realistic too. You know, I think a lot of 
you know, I see the, a lot of hope people have for like the Mueller investigation, you know, and that, oh, this is going to fix it. And I just want to say to them, <laughs> I don't know if that's where you want to put all your little eggs in that little basket yeah. right there. Um, there was one of the articles you sent me, there was a, a guy who had survived, um, I don't know if it, it was a, PO, a POW camp or a concentration camp. And he had talked about um, that part of his ability to survive it was just being realistic with where he was. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and he, he kind of, uh, you know, he, he said, we, and people asked like, well, who were the people that didn't survive? And he said, well, the people that really did kind of peg their hopes and dreams on a certain date, like, oh, Christmas is coming and we're going to be freed then, or this thing's going to happen. And then it wouldn't happen. And it would set them into this, this despair mm -hmm. thing. And these are the people that gave up hope. You know, these were people that did get the learned helplessness part of it. Right. And, um, and I think that's a chilling tale for that, um, that kind of mindset. Um, and, and that this, this optimism too, that Martin Seligman talks about, um, I think is important, you know, that really the resiliency part is, is a big part of that. It is really, um, can, go ahead. Yeah, well, one of the things that, that helps build that is to know, is to not feel like you're completely helpless, to see, so if you see something in the environment that you can change, that's really highly associated with not, not sort of developing that personality style. And so I think keeping your eyes open and aware of what's, what's in my life right now that I can control that is not negative that it I think it is it's absolutely necessary for us to cultivate I, I think that's a great point uh, um, I know that when I can feel my little depressions come on like I did on Sunday I felt this depression coming on this like and I'm like is this is this grief is that my dad grief still comes up for me in cycles even after 10 years and I'm going to Jamestown in a few weeks and I know I'm going to be doing a lot of dad stuff so I'm like is that what this is about or whatever and I'm like, okay, well, I'm willing to be with it, whatever it is. I'm, I'm okay. I can sit with these darker emotions. But then a part of me was like, um, also was like, well, you know what? I, I, I have all this paperwork in my office that I needed to sort through. And it was one of those things on the to-do list that just sits over your shoulder. And that in itself can start to feel too much and overwhelming in life. And I tackled the paperwork over two hours my office is spotless now. And I have to tell you, my mood was fantastic at the end of that. <laughs> so there was something that I could control, which is I'm going to do this paperwork. I can file this stuff and shred this stuff. And it sounds so stupid and easy and simple and ridiculous. And yet it is powerful medicine. Yes. And I think... It, it's worth noting that it was sort of a mundane, simple thing. I think a lot of us have in our minds that we need to start a rally or we need to like, you know, like, like have 10,000 people in a, like, which is, which is fine. Like that's not, but, but it really starts with just sort of, yeah, looking around you, what, what can I do? And that, that might be, you know, having some huge event that makes everybody feel better, but it really doesn't have to be. Um, and, well, yeah, yeah. And, and I think that if, you know, with the baby step of like starting with your own environment, like what can I change inside this environment right now? 
is I think then feeds into, then it becomes a domino thing. Like, oh, Mm -hmm. okay, now my mood is lifted. Now I have energy and it widens your perspective instantly. Like something in the brain goes, oh, wider perspective. There's no more, less despair here, less helplessness. Now from this perspective, what could I do? Oh, I can volunteer and get people registered to vote. Okay, now that I've got some momentum, I'm going to go online and volunteer for that, you know, yes. or, or whatever it is. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, the whole mindset set shift thing has been a huge thing for me the last year, really learning about that. And yeah. um, I was a moody girl, you know, I was one of those moody childs and I uh, loved being in my moods and I thought my moods were the most sacred thing on earth. Like, do not disturb my mood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and when I learned that uh, my moods were kind of leading me around by my nose uh, and that mm-hmm. I wasn't in control, that I thought that was being in control, I really changed my life. Really, really did. Definitely did. You know, it's so funny, though, you asked about just about being a child psychologist. And when I see a new when I have a new patient or client come in, I always have the parents fill out the questionnaire form with their history. And one of the questions is, what do you want your child to be when they grow up? And and I I, can you guess what the number the number I mean, 95 percent of parents put down. Do you want to guess what it is? They say it's still doctor. No, it's happy. It's happy, which I feel like is such a burden in some way. I mean, I can understand. I mean, you know, I've been doing this for like twenty some years. So, but I mean, almost every time, it's what do you want your child to be when they grow up happy, and that's a good thing. But it's also a really hard thing. And if you're the kind of child who happy is just one of many emotions (laughs) um, and not the dominant one, you're going to feel like a failure. Yeah. it's just, I don't know, it just made me think of that when you were saying that. And, and it's also, it's an emotion. It's, it's not a destiny. Yeah. Um, and so, and I'm not putting any parents out. I, I probably said the same thing. When of my course. And of course you want your child um, to be happy. Yeah. It's like, you're not going to write down, I want my child to be miserable. And miserable. Yeah. But, or, um, industrious or, you know. Yeah. But it, it is an interesting choice that the American psyche makes. I mean, pursuit of happiness is in the Declaration of Independence. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it's like, there is this infatuation we have with happiness. And, uh, and it and it's, and it's definitely an externalized thing. We really believe that only that thing can make me happy. I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's going to be, if anything's going to be the downfall of the species, yes. is that. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, oh, it's, it's interesting. I, and I had something that I wanted else to say, and I cannot remember it right now. Oh, well, that's just the way conversations go. Um, so moving forward, uh, so what, what do you think you're going to do the next year? Well, first of all, you're get going to Europe. You're going to go live in Europe. So I know. See, I mean, that really sounds like a cop out. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do a visiting professorship in in the Czech Republic. So I'll be out. I hope you guys. I hope you guys fix things. <laughs> well, I have to admit, Ellen, that I got my Irish citizenship. So I've got a little extra oh. something in my back pocket. The day oh. of the election, I applied for my Irish citizenship. My grandfather was born there. 
my dad had his Irish citizenship because I was like, just in case it goes a little kaflui in a few years. Um, but I think the good news about this is that clearly you're an engaged person and I'm excited that you're going to go and live in a different culture and see our country from a different perspective yes. and, and your, and your work obviously and psychology and everything that you're going right, to be doing right. there and, and, and interacting with people, uh, through uh, especially Eastern Europe. I mean, that's kind of fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at they and they actually in the Czech Republic have a president not dissimilar from ours. Yeah. Um, and and so there is this sort of worldwide sort of attraction to different a different sort of leadership style than yep. that. Um, and so I am really interested in in seeing how they are and also studying psychology in a different place. Like how yeah. do they look at mental illness? How do they view, you know, I've done some work with a few of the researchers there, but it will be really interesting to sort of be in the thick of it and, and see how it's, uh, yeah, how, how it's viewed, how it's different. How well, it's may, maybe in a year we'll have you back and we'll be able to unpack that experience. Yes. Oh, that would be wonderful. Yeah, I would, I would love to do that. I would, I would love to hear from you and, and see what it's like to, to live abroad for a while and, and get a wider perspective. Uh, thank you so much for being here and doing this. Oh, you're welcome. It was such a pleasure. Well, good. I'm glad it was. And uh, everyone, if you're interested in what Ellen does and the work that her uh, organization that she works at does. It's really a fantastic place. It's called the Clay Center for Young Healthy Minds. And I know many of you out there are parents or grandparents. Mm -hmm. And it's a great resource for parenting and especially uh, helping families, you know, strengthen and uh, learn more about well-being and emotional well-being of children. Uh, a great place. I'm a uh, hopefully going to be a part of a little project they do. They have a little film project about resiliency. And I'm going to talk about my own experience is learning about resiliency in my own childhood by overcoming strange events that I did. <laughs> Very excited about this film. Yes. Yeah. And also the ways in which I didn't learn that, you know, and really the, the challenges of that. So uh, it's, it's great, great work. So please, uh, you know, check that out. Once again, the Clay Center for Young Healthy Minds. And Ellen, thank you so much for being here. And uh, say hello to Hannah for me. And everyone, thank you so much for listening to this today. And uh, if you're listening to this and you're a subscriber to the podcast, I want to thank you for coming on board or being on board forever and still being here with me. I'm very happy that I'm uh, immersing myself back in this work and very, very happy to have you on board. And know that if you uh, come over to my Patreon page and support me there for just $2 a month, you get to hear this podcast three days after I record it. Not a whole week, but three days. And you always get a bonus episode too. And plus, every once in a while, I send out other kind of offers and things like that. But when you do come and support the work over there, you're really supporting yourself and you're supporting the idea that conversations like this are important in the world. And you're also giving me a chance to support the people that help me make this podcast and the other work I do with actual real money. Imagine that, actual real money that pays actual things like electric bills, like to use the very electricity that I'm using right now to record this. So come on board. It's two bucks a month. You know, it's not even a half a latte somewhere, for God's sake, people. 
Anyway, thank you so much. I want to thank Logan Heftel, as always, for helping me organize and produce and put the music into this wonderful uh, little podcast we have here. And everyone, go out, turn off the TV, read some news. Even better, it's summertime. Put the news down. You can look at headlines tomorrow. Pick up a good book. Go see an independent film somewhere in an art house. Go see some live theater or some live music. Go outside, hug a tree, look at a wave, wave at a wave, say hi to a bird, feed a squirrel. I don't know. Just get out of the house, for God's sake. It's summertime. Go play tag with your neighbors. And, and I mean that. Let's, I think we should start a 50-plus tag league. I think it would be great for the American psyche to get out of the house and play tag or, or capture the flag again. All right, folks. You guys have a great, great week, and uh, we will be back. Have a good one. You are good. You're better than you take credit for. Got a heart like a fireplace, a soul like a living room. You are wise, you know more than you realize. Rise up like the sun, cross the sky, outshine stars. I wish you'd see, when you hurt yourself, you hurt me. I wish you could believe. You are good You are me I am you and everyone we meet Nothing separates the in-between But fear You are free As long as you're careful and you breathe No authority, no evil thing can claim you I'm trying to learn to love and receive it in return I wish you could believe you are good You are good.